Welcome to the Knowledge at Wharton podcasts. Knowledge at Wharton is the online research and business analysis journal of the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit our website at knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Support for Knowledge at Wharton podcasts comes from Vanguard, offering investments designed to help individuals and institutions reach their long-term financial goals at Vanguard.com. In Wharton marketing professor George Day's world, the term, quote, peripheral vision, end quote, means the ability of companies to detect, interpret, and act on distant signals, whether that's a rumor heard about a new rival, a newspaper article about a new medical device, or the popularity of a blog started by a dissatisfied customer. Day and co-author Paul Schumacher have written a book entitled, appropriately enough, Peripheral Vision, designed to help firms develop this capacity and avoid being blindsided by unexpected events. According to the authors, only 20% of companies have succeeded in doing this well enough to stay ahead of their competitors. Professor Day is here today with Knowledge at Wharton's McCool Pandya and me, Robbie Shell, to talk about his new book. Professor Day, your book illustrates the, the phenomenon of peripheral vision by using several case studies, such as how the BBC dealt with the digital multimedia challenge, how Anheuser-Busch responded to the low-carb diet revolution, how Mattel struggled with its Barbie franchise, and others. Can you pick a couple of these examples, or others, to explain briefly for us how peripheral vision works or doesn't work? The story that I think most captivates people is about Barbie and uh, how she lost her dominance in the fashion doll market. In five years, they went from being uh, queen, I guess, of the hill, to uh, being second in the market, having lost their uh, global position to a doll called Bratz. And it's a remarkable story of uh, a leader in a market being deposed, and largely because of lack of peripheral vision. The problem began as uh, the market evolved without them really playing close attention. They were used to a market where the target audience was girls between 3 and 11. And they were somewhat aware that this target market was uh, getting younger. But what they had not fully realized in, say, 2000, 2001, is that, in fact, the target market was down to ages 3 to 5. So there's quite an age compression going on here. Now, they were, they were blindsided, I think, for a number of reasons. And uh, in, in our book, we emphasize that uh, leading companies have a superior capability in, in sensing and acting on these weak signals. Uh, the companies that we've studied that are really excellent in this, Anheuser-Busch is certainly one of them. Uh, we uh, learned a great deal from Johnson & Johnson. We followed companies like Citibank, which are, in our view, very good at this. And uh, what we found in, uh, in Barbie, or in Mattel more, more accurately, was that, uh, that they lacked some key ingredients. The ingredients we find in the capability are, first of all, vigilant leadership. Well, in the case of Mattel, and, and uh, the problem then with Barbie was that the leadership had been totally consumed with a, um, a financial crisis brought on by an ill-advised acquisition. And they brought in a new CEO from outside the industry who, of course, as you can appreciate, would be rather insensitive to these kinds of trends. And he promised, quote, stability. 
and he engaged in cost-cutting to get the finances in, in order. Well, that distracted everyone. Uh, their second ingredient, where they, I think, were deficient, was in the way they approached strategy. They uh, were very much focused on keeping Barbie at the cutting edge of conventional fashion. But Barbie lost ground because girls were dealing with other kinds of fashion. And they wanted, and, and, and Bratz is very fashion-forward, uh, aggressive, pouty, and, uh, and, and a very different kind of doll. And I think just Mattel people had a whole lot of trouble dealing with the idea. Uh, they were also, in their strategy making, very concerned about cannibalization. They didn't want to bring out another doll that would eat into the uh, Barbie franchise. So both those ingredients, I think, served them poorly. Their culture, which we find is, a, is an important element to uh, successful peripheral vision, was very product-driven. Uh, the cu culture was also very cautious, to our surprise. And, and a manifestation was that they had a 100-page manual on how to manage the Barbie brand, which was all about protecting the brand. It was not about being adventuresome, trying new things. Uh, they really didn't listen very well at all to the scouts on the periphery. And in, in our uh, exploration of the periphery with many companies, uh, especially companies like Intel, which is another, I, I think, excellent company, Andy Grove uh, put great stock in what the scouts were saying, the people way out on the periphery who may not be able to really articulate what was happening, but uh, he would listen to them and encourage them. And this is, this is, this is leadership. Uh, so in their culture, they also did not share information well. It was very product-centric, if you like, product-siloed. Their knowledge systems were uh, fascinating because they had no lack of data. In fact, they had more data than they really knew how to interpret. And one of our messages is it's not so much about the collection of the data, it's about asking the right questions and interpreting the answers correctly. And they got lost, I think, in uh, 200 or so fragmented enterprise systems that couldn't easily share their data. So they had the data, which probably would have revealed this pattern. Um, it's, it's a little bit nine, like the 9-11 Commission finally came to the conclusion. We had lots of warning. We just couldn't, in the famous saying, connect the dots. And that's what, what Mattel was unable to do. And then lastly, uh, the, the, the fifth ingredient to success here is how they're structured. And uh, that is their organizational structure. Uh, for example, the boys and girls divisions didn't either interact or transfer people. So they had structural problems, very product-centered organization. So those are the ingredients we find in outstanding companies. Uh, and as you mentioned in your introduction, we found only about 20% had the right kind of capability manifested, uh, particularly in leadership. That's a big driver to, to help them deal with weak signals from the periphery. That's very interesting. The, as, you know, as, as, as the father of an eight-year-old and a half-year-old daughter who has three uh, Bratz dolls, I can really appreciate <laughs> uh, what, what you are saying. Uh, and, and you're quite right about you know, the pouty aspect. They, mm -hmm. they, they definitely are you know, uh, very different than Barbie. Uh, why uh, is uh, peripheral vision so difficult for companies to develop? Well, let's uh, go back and uh, be careful what we mean by peripheral vision. It's not only just the sensing of the weak signals, 
But as I indicated in the uh, the Barbie story, it's all about the interpretation, and uh, then then of course taking appropriate action. So it requires probing and so forth. Um, I think the difficulty ultimately rests in the nature of the periphery. There's a lot of weak signals, and we use the term signal-to-noise ratio. And uh, so the number of signals to the amount of, of confounding and confusing noise is upwards of 1 to 20 or worse. So you have to have a way of sifting out the wheat from the chaff. And this is very difficult, and most companies just don't have the right kind of structure and, and the right kind of inquisitive leadership to ask the right questions. You have to have formal processes in place. And we found that the companies that really understood their periphery asked probing questions. And uh, for example, uh, I think a good illustration of the kind of question we have in mind is ones that uh, the nanotechnology companies are using. And, and by the way, when we talk about peripheral vision, this applies to all organizations. And we did a lot of uh, work with technology companies, uh, consumer products companies. But in the case of the nanotechnology companies, the, the question that I think yielded the most insight was, what other industries have similar characteristics to ours that we can learn from? And right away they came up with, aha, we need to understand GMOs, genetically modified organisms in Europe. And of course that has been a uh, debacle. Uh, the European consumer has rejected GMOs, and they reject them for a variety of reasons. They, they don't understand the benefits, but they see the problems. They're introduced by big, faceless, uh, usually American corporations. Uh, their side effects over the long run are uncertain. And, and many parallels can be found with nanotechnology, which is, uh, is somewhat even more confounded by the fact that many nanotechnology developments are internalized through drug delivery systems, uh, little nanobots that travel through your capillaries. And so there's a tremendous invasion of personal privacy introduced by, guess whom, the large faceless global corporation. Uh, there are, at this stage, no real standards for managing and monitoring the nanotechnology applications. So the industry, and interestingly, it's a Japanese company that took the lead on this, uh, Mitsubishi, uh, sorry, Matsushita, was uh, able to take these lessons and work with the industry to develop a, a comprehensive program to avoid being blindsided by the industry. But they, uh, they could see this one coming and were able to take action. So a, a lot of it is about... Uh, identifying surprises that could be either threats or opportunities and dealing with them sooner. And, and I want to emphasize, you will eventually interpret the signal from the periphery because it will come knocking on your door. What you have to do is see these things earlier than your competition. That's how you win. Okay. Um where are companies most likely to be blindsided, or to use your words, what is their biggest threat? Is it from new products, new competition, uh, unexpected developments in the global markets? Yes. All of the above. All of the above. <laughs> and in fact, we make no presumption about where the threats and opportunities are going to come from. It could be any one of those zones. It could be out of the media uh, who are looking for a story. It could be uh, from the periphery of your own organization. It could be from technology change, depending on the industry you're in. 
More generally, we find that the problems arise when you're working, and particularly acute problems arise when you're working in sectors that are highly volatile. There's a rapid rate of change and a rapid uh, uh, involvement of the government for a variety of reasons. So changing regulations can blindside you globally. And so we look at the seven different sectors of, the, uh, of your broad environment and focus on each one of them. And any one of them can be a problem. And in fact, it's the ones you're not paying attention to that often are the source of the biggest surprises. I have a couple of <clears throat> related questions. I wonder if well, I could go back to something you said earlier about separating the wheat from the chaff and the noise to signal ratio. Uh, what, how, how can companies tell the two apart? You know, is, is there a way of really finding out what is really a, likely to be a sub, uh, something that results in a substantive change in your business versus something that's likely just to be a distraction? Uh, and, and sort of related to that is how difficult does this whole process become as uh, emerging economies like uh, China and India come up and, and you know, there might be a, a company that comes out of just nowhere and, and, and takes over your industry. Uh, could you talk about both those things, please? Um, let me start with the uh, latter observation, which is absolutely accurate, that uh, we're finding that many companies have uh, emerging competition out of China, India. Uh, there's a total surprise to them. And uh, so how does one deal with this? How does one get an advance warning? But I do want to emphasize, all you need to be able to do is see them faster than your rivals in order to be able to take effective action. So our process has uh, five distinct steps to it. The first one is scoping. And so there's a variety of exercises we have, including scenario analysis, for designing exactly where to probe. And, and these are out of what we call guiding questions. Uh, uh, revert back to the notion of the nanotechnology industry, asking themselves what other industries would have damaged them uh, or, or have similar experience. So the probing questions say, we, we can't look everywhere. So part of the answer then, right at the outset, McCool, is have to narrow your uh, search because uh, we want to focus on just those things that are highly pertinent. Next step then is to do the formal scanning. So if we do a, a scenarios analysis, uh, and my colleague uh, Paul Schumacher did one uh, with the Enron Credit Union, which is uh, absolutely fascinating, and I think it illustrates the point. Uh, one of the probing questions we like to use is, well, what are the uh, most unimaginable scenarios that you could think of? And so think of something that would be really unexpected but devastating if it occurred. And they did come up with this idea in 1998, mark my number, <laughs> that Enron might go bankrupt. And, of course, a credit union, Enron Credit Union in particular, is totally anchored to their client. With that insight, they said, well, let's, uh, let's monitor it. So the, the learning process goes, we, we, we've identified a potential area. We're going to do a lot of monitoring and collecting information just so we can get early warning on this. Then we have to be able to interpret it properly. That's step three. Then we probe hard, and then finally we take action. And they went through that whole process, coming out the other end, and they said, you know, this may be a low probability, but there's some things we can do to limit the damage. And the first thing they did, by the way, was to go out and find some new customers so they wouldn't be totally reliant on Enron. Second is they d disentangled their systems from Enron 
because had they gone down uh, with Enron, it would have been a systems problem. And uh, then they tried to uh, reposition themselves in the market with uh, an identity that was not solely tied to Enron, more focusing on their capabilities. Well, when the, uh, when, when the unexpected did in fact come to pass, they were somewhat prepared. They had a substantial run when bankruptcy was announced, and they lost about 50% of the customers, but they didn't lose 100%, and they have survived and begun to uh, turn the corner. How does, how does a leader foster peripheral vision throughout the organization, and are there rewards for managers and employees who do this? We found in uh, a study of about 170 companies now that leadership is the dominant determinant of how good your peripheral vision is, because it shapes everything. It shapes your willingness to think broadly strategically. It shapes your willingness to invest resources and so if you have uh, uh, a CEO who's really more like a COO, and this is a, a comment made to me by a very well-known uh, investment banker who invests in companies, and I can't tell you his name, but it would be instantly recognizable. And he said, I find about 90% of CEOs are more like COOs. That is, they're focused on making their short-term numbers this year, maybe next year. There are 10% that I'm interested in are the ones that are uh, really curious. So this uh, inquisitive uh, CEO is one that uh, asks a lot of probing questions. Think Andy Grove. Think Sam Palmasano. Uh, as examples of people who push their organization to think more broadly. They are people that are extensively networked. They have lots of sources of information. And people feel comfortable in passing on weak signals to them. Uh, the, uh, the, the book that uh, we found very influential in this regard was Andy Groh's book, Only the Paranoids Survive. And uh, he has a number of examples in there about the mavericks, uh, the outliers in, uh, in the organization, feeling comfortable in coming to him. In many organizations, uh, they're either cast out, or they're ignored, uh, and they'll get a hearing or the information they have does not bubble up to the top. So we found uh, some personal characteristics of these leaders, uh, a, a question of uh, how they manage the strategy process, and definitely a networking phenomena. They do not rely on material that's just digested and sent to them. They're out there restlessly talking with their leaders. They, they seek out opportunities to learn. And it's that very openness to new ideas, to weak signals that might be possibilities that I think distinguishes the, the, the true leaders. Uh, one final question, and that is, uh, uh, if, uh, you mentioned that uh, only 20% of the companies uh, succeed in doing this well. If uh, For companies that are part of the remaining 80%, if you, you were to give them one or two concrete words of advice, uh, what would those be? The... 80% are those companies that are uh, in highly uh, volatile uh, industries. And, and, of course, that applies most of them. You asked earlier about uh, globalization. Most companies are now either in global markets or are globalizing. So they have to learn how to scan much more broadly. So the, the, I would offer two pieces of advice. One is the whole question of 
redirecting your strategy process, driven by the leader, to ask probing questions about the periphery. And, and, and we have a whole process for doing that in there. Second, I would put some structural things in place so that if a weak signal does come into the organization, that everybody knows where to send it. So suppose you hear about a, a new business opportunity. Uh, a salesperson is out there talking to a customer and says, you know, your product is okay, but it doesn't really meet my needs. Uh, my needs are changing. Where does that salesperson indeed send that? Uh, so you need to have a well-defined uh, uh, point of contact within the organization that encourages and nurtures these kinds of ideas and provides enough incentive so that your salesperson or whomever you want to hear from is in fact going to be willing to take the time. We find that often salespeople get really interesting insights because they're out on the periphery and they have no interest in sending it to headquarters. They say, well, it's a big black hole. I never hear what happens to the suggestion or the rumor or whatever it may be. And there's no, no reward for me in doing it. And it just takes a lot of time. So that's how organizations uh, can both pinch off signals, but by the reverse token, they can also nurture and encourage them. Thank you. Thanks very much for talking with us. Thank you. I really appreciated the opportunity. Okay.